Hey, how's it going? Welcome to the End Poem Podcast, a new one-on-one show where I sit down with the folks who make some of our favorite games, or maybe the games that are just around the corner. I'm Alex James Kane, author of the Boss Fight Books entry on Star Wars Night Sealed Republic. I've written a lot of reported features, news, and long-form stories for places like Polygon, who published my oral history of Morrowind in 2019. I've written for Killscreen, Rolling Stone, and Glixel, Variety, StarWars.com, USA Today, PC Gamer, Fangoria Magazine, and a bunch of other places. I've really missed talking to game developers over the last year especially, but I've been recapping Star Wars shows with my friend Marie Claire on her podcast, What the Force, since Disney Plus launched a few years back. So special thanks to Marie Claire and also to composer Christy Carew, who did the intro theme you heard a minute ago. I've grown to love podcasting, so I thought it might be a perfect way to catch up with some of the people I've talked to in years past, meet some very cool new ones, and learn more about the art and craft of making video games. Way back in June of 2017, in the lead-up to Star Wars Battlefront 2, I wrote a profile of Tom Keegan that, through bittersweet happenstance, wound up being my first full byline for RollingStone.com the very same week they laid off all their gaming editors who had built the short-lived Glixel Vertical. But I have really fond memories of that interview with Tom. Battlefront 2 was his first Star Wars project after Rogue One, but before The Last Jedi, practically a lifetime ago. He's worked as a performance director on some incredible projects. The Chronicles of Riddick, Escape from Butcher Bay, The Darkness, a number of battlefields for DICE, Mirror's Edge Catalyst, three Wolfensteins for Machine Games, a couple of recent Need for Speed titles for Spoken, The Walking Dead Saints and Sinners, StarCraft II, World of Warcraft, Dead Rising, Call of Duty Modern Warfare, Fallen Order, and now Jedi Survivor. Tom's a guy who comes from the world of New York theater. He once worked at a theater company owned by Gene Erdman, who, as it happens, was married to Joseph Campbell, the mythologist who synthesized the hero's journey and inspired George Lucas. When I started putting together this podcast, Catching up with Tom about Fallen Order and Jedi Survivor was one of the first items on my list, so thanks for giving it a listen. Here's me and Tom. I think the last time we talked, you were kind of done with Star Wars, and then you were sort of heading over to DICE to work on uh, Mm. Battlefront V, I guess would have been what it was at the time. Wow, that's a long time ago. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, you've uh, you've done some cool stuff since then. Uh, yeah. The world is world's very different now. <laughs> yes, it is. I'm sure the process has evolved, and yeah, you know, the pandemic. Uh, I literally had just gotten back from Dice, and the pandemic came, and um, you know, everything kind of shut down briefly. So, you know, I took it as an opportunity to work on other projects. Um, I've been wanting to write a book for a long time on directing and I finally got to start on that. And now I'm <laughs> three years in, as you know, writing is challenging, um, hard work. And, um, but I feel, you know, very committed to it. I feel like as a senior person in the profession and somebody who's had some of the most I feel a most amazing teachers on the planet. It's kind of almost like a duty for me to pass the information on, pass, pass the techniques on. Very cool. Yeah. You, uh, you used to do writing in the theater days, right? In New York. 
Yeah, but it's different, you know, writing a nonfiction book, you know, is different from writing dialogue or structuring a show. Some elements are the same, but some elements are, are very, very different. But I have this great guy, Greg Miller, um, who's a, a writing coach and he's, he's working with me. He's uh, like the main writing coach for the Las Vegas Daily Newspaper, which is actually a major newspaper in the U.S. And um, he's got a Ph.D. in writing and he's just helped me so much to structure sentences and paragraphs and get a tone and feeling. So, yeah, you know, it, it goes on a little bit, a little bit every day. Uh, there's so many younger people coming up in the profession that really want to direct and have good ideas, but the video game industry still in some areas operates like a garage band. <laughs> and I think writing is one. Sound, it can be, or vo voiceover directing certainly can be. Motion capture directing can be. And, you know, there are a lot of talented animators and sound designers and people, but, you know, they, they haven't taken acting classes. They haven't done improv. They haven't studied voice. They haven't studied movement. And so, um, or, or directing, right? They're, it's a craft. And I'm very passionate about it because it took me a really long time to crack it. You know, I was, a, I was a movement person. I was an actor. And even acting, you know, it's... It's, it takes a long time, or it just took me a long time. I mean, I think some people are born, you know, naturally gifted. And there are people in voiceover who are born incredibly gifted, you know, who can do voices and imitate people and are, are brilliant. Like uh, Shelby that you worked on uh, Youngblood with. Yeah, Shelby's amazing. But Shelby has studied acting, you know. Shelby also has studied acting and appeared in live action, but there's a, a lot of people who, who really haven't, and I think... And I, I know a few that have actually confessed to me that they, they feel a little bit insecure that they never really trained properly. So I also started doing more kind of private acting classes. And also during the pandemic, I taught a class called Foundations of Acting, where went through some of the basic Meisner and method acting exercises with mainly voice actors. And um, it, was, it was beautiful. It was a great experience. So you've, you've got this new sort of virtual world with, with everybody being kind of comfortable with Zoom now, so you can teach a class anywhere, anytime, right? Yeah, you know what? I did a lot of it, and then I got so, like, I think everybody in the industry knows that there was a huge, there was such a backlog that the, the, the moment things started to open up, there's been this flood of work to get. <laughs> to get projects out, you know, like a dam that collapsed and the, the pressure has been enormous. And that first phase for me is just kind of finishing up. I did, last year I did five projects and it was, it, it was, it was a real challenge. And I, I, my, my classes kind of went on hold. My book went a little bit on hold, but I'm back into it. And, um, you know, the, the world keeps turning and, and the world keeps changing and now there's AI, right? And, um, you know, there's different, there's a lot of different concerns. The voice acting community is very concerned, rightfully so, about AI. Because AI can, can take your voice and within 30 seconds have a voice print of you. And then there, there goes your work. It's, that's, that's a real challenge. And a lot of the voice acting industry right now is really 
trying to pull together as much as possible around this issue. Of course, we have the writer's strike in Hollywood going on right now, um, which AI is figuring in that as well. So things keep changing, things keep rolling, things keep going on. Yeah, it seems like there's this fear that, you know, you could get an actor who's pretty good, but is not what James Earl Jones or somebody who's really recognizable and just filter the new performance through this like AI imprint. And it's, it's, it's kind of scary. The thought that you're sort of your, your recognizable brand, you know, it's scary. The idea that somebody could just sort of take that and do what they want with it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just like it, look, you know, what's happening with music, like Drake, you know, like people doing a whole Drake song and a music video that he had nothing to do with and putting it out there and people listening to it and it going viral. I mean, it's, it's a challenging horizon for creators. You know, again, that's what the writer's strike is all about. It's, it's about creators being able to make a living in, you know, this, this virtual world and in this industry. Yeah. Sort of like protecting your, your rights essentially. Yeah. Very much protecting your rights and protecting, you know, human creativity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, being kind of in the journalism world and from the, the whole writing background. It's yeah, it's very scary for for a lot of people. But yeah, I mean, you know, on the the sort of lighter note, uh, Jedi Survivor just came out and people are really loving it. You're kind of you're sort of online, so you're aware of how much people are sort of glowing about this game, right? Yeah, well, as soon as I um I saw the buzz on it was very positive. So I had a feeling it would be successful. And um you know, you just never know. Really, I've, I worked on things that I absolutely loved and thought were going to be incredible and they bombed. It's, it's heartbreaking, but you know, you get, you get kind of a thick skin and you roll on with it. And um, most of the time I don't read reviews, but I kind of peaked at Jedi and they were very, very positive. So, you know, that's, that's very nice. That's really, really nice. Yeah. People are digging the new characters and then, you know, there's a lot of that kind of notion that, you know, games critics who aren't necessarily big Star Wars fans are saying like, you know, I don't really care about Star Wars, but this game is fantastic and you should play it. So that's kind of always exciting and vindicating to see like, you know, it's not just the fact that I liked Star Wars when I was seven years old. Like it is a great game, even if you stripped all that away. But also, like as a as a director, so you're doing these things what two months at a time in the volume? Like, would you say is it two months per project or? Uh, no, it's more than that. It depends on the size of the project, but um, we'll do like a three week shoot, let's say, and I will do maybe four of those over the course of two years. So, and that's actually a lot of time, and. You know, over the course of two years, uh, a game develops. You start out in one place and you hope it's still in that place when you, you know, you get to the end. And so much of it is hidden from me as a director in terms of the gameplay because, you know, I'm not embedded with the team. And so, you know, I mean, so much of it is about these story and the characters and, you know, brilliant gameplay, game design, beloved characters all coming together. I'm really glad because that that that's a game in particular that really developed. You know, the ending is very dramatic without any spoilers. The ending is extremely dramatic and when and the beginning is very powerful also. 
right? And we can say the beginning, right? Cal, Cal goes on this mission, um, you know, behind enemy lines with a small crew, and that crew ends up basically getting wiped out. And then in the original kind of script, there was a kind of a long time of, you know, various things you could do until this like big dramatic thing came up. And my, my take on it was that, you know, I, I wanted to pull some stuff forward, but also that the, that this, this loss had to really affect Cal. It really had to mean something to him. It couldn't just be like, you know, we did this thing. I got away. Bode got away. Yeah. Now what? It really had to be, you know, he's, he's suffering. He's suffering deeply. And, you know, he's, he's suffering from a, a kind of a drift, a drift in life that, you know, the crew has broken up. In a, in a sense, uh, you know, one of the through lines is Cal wants to get the band back together. But there's a lot of complications to that now. And, you know, finding that was a real joy discovering these characters and what they've been up to in between and what did that mean you know and talking to each actor what did that mean for them and all, always how, how how does that parallel our own lives as an actor as a director you're always looking for the connection and you know we were we were in a pandemic and there was this whole thing of like your your life is completely interrupted now what then, then where do you go? Who are, who are you? What do you have? What, what has any meaning? You have, you have to dig deeper, you know, for meaning. Also for many people, you know, there's this sense of at what point does your drive and ambition get tarnished, right? We all we start out with a vision, an idea when we're young, and sometimes we hit, but a lot of times we don't. And that dream gets a little bit tarnished. You know, there's a kind of surrender that happens in life and and cal has a kind of choice am i gonna pursue this dream or am i gonna allow the dream to change and and get a heart right or find a home so much about home so those are you know those are really great and powerful story pieces to work with and story and character things to work with yeah he's sort of been off on this crusade for five years right sort of hunting the people who hunted him you know, it's it's not quite revenge, but he's he's basically trying to clean up the mess caused by the first game. And yeah, all the people that he cares about are sort of off doing their own thing. Seer, you know, has established like this society uh, or is part of a society, a network. Uh, and Marin's off doing her thing. And then Grease is uh, what running a pub <laughs> in a sort of Western uh, town, which is cool. Yeah, we had to do a lot of off screen work about that right about when did when did this band fall apart and why and what did it mean to them you know to kind of to, to leave and go off on their own i mean seer has had this kind of spiritual awakening and has a definite sense of purpose but seer always was someone seeking redemption that was a driving force for her that's like the spine of that character she's seeking redemption cal is someone who's looking for an identity in a way because has no roots no, no idea of family per se, except now, now in the first one, he had this kind of ragtag family, right? They came together. So, you know, he, he's, he's always looking for a purpose. And in the game, you know, that's one of the things he clicks into, right? There's this purpose and we're going to go after it, right? But it turns out he's not the only one going after it. 
Grease also, you know, um, he lost an arm. Um, it's, it's not really talked about that much, but he lost an arm. And it was like, well, how did he lose this arm? You know, and what did that mean? And, um, you know, from the first one, we know that Grease is a kind of a guy on the run, in a way, a creature on the run. You know, a, a wheeler, dealer, uh, you know, uh, someone who owes owes people, you know, in, in a sense is kind of hiding out, right, in, in, the, in the desert somewhere, in a, in a little saloon somewhere hoping you know he isn't tracked down and you know bodes bode is somebody a new character who is looking in a way kind of joins up with the group joins up with cal you know finds a kind of brother cal finds a friend right i mean it's so there's kind of a, a beautiful relationship there with that character who also has really a lot of stuff going on under the surface and that's a great credit to the writers that you know there's there's characters who have stuff going on under the surface it's not all on the surface and that whole bode cal thing was a really fun storyline to to work with but again <laughs> uh really takes a turn later on well, yeah it's cool that you have this whole first game as kind of a, a backdrop and so there's just sort of a richness to the sequel by having all this sort of work in the background do you recall that conversation between cal and is it the ninth sister that he sort of fought in the first game the the larger like you know alien um cyborg so i love that conversation where he calls her by her previous you know jedi name her original name and there's this notion that you know i'm gonna i'm gonna set you free basically by you know putting her out of her her misery do you recall kind of the conversations about like his thought there and like this idea that you know, he doesn't really go out of his way to he doesn't sort of think to <laughs> like that you know she can't be saved right she's fully on the dark side uh which has some interesting implications for later in the game as you know it sort of explores darkness and things like that cal doesn't really he doesn't want to kill and he doesn't want to kill her but he Cal is still, even into this game, somewhat romanticizes the idea of a Jedi. And so when he meets Dagangara, right, in the tank in, in Survivor, his first approach is like, hey, I'm a Jedi, you're a Jedi, you know, let's get together and, <laughs> and um, you know, fight together and, you know, get the Jedi back or whatever. But it, you know, it just does not go that way. You know, again, it comes up to that theme of you have dreams and you have ideals, but then the world is not black and white and people are not black and white, just like with Bode, you know, even with Seer, right? Like when you meet her in this one, she's not terribly warm. She's not terribly warm to Cal. So, you know, it's interesting when you think about Star Wars and the whole idea of the dark side and what in Jungian terms they call the shadow. So the shadow is the unexpressed side. The shadow is the side we don't want to show people, the face behind our face. And there's something really rich to explore there about, you know, the dark side, also with Darth Vader. And, you know, when you're, when you're directing something, when you're acting something, you can never play a villain as a bad guy or a, or a, a bad, you know, I mean that for a woman as well. Right. You have to play them as someone who makes choices that make sense to them based on what they've gone through. And, you know, you have to dig down and find 
that place for the character that where it's like what what made them make this choice and how does it make sense to them you know how does it make sense to go to the dark side how does it make, you know it's it's kind of like the ideological split between liberals and conservatives if you're kind of like liberal if you're open and you're open to new things then there are people that are going to take advantage of that and if you're conservative you're like no we're going to protect our boundaries by whatever means right we're going to protect what we have but both both sides have real weaknesses in that you know in, in liberals you you can be taken over and for conservatives you get a sclerosis you grow stale you um you're going to shrivel up and it be becomes oppressive right and so i think that's the wonderful thing about star wars is it you know it really explores that uh, the dark side the, the 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 light side yeah i think about the titles of these two games being fallen order and survivor there's this like image that both cal and marin and really a lot of the characters they're sort of dragging these dead families behind them right oh my god aren't they <laughs> these poor things uh, you know like you can't you can't look at marin without thinking about you know kind of the loss she suffered of like her whole people essentially and then cal you know if you consider the jedi sort of a, a people or at least an institution it's basically the same story and so when you talk about the shadow like that's immediately what i think of is just this notion that they did have families and then the then the empire happened that's why they're so connected, Cal and Marin, because they're both orphans. They're both people who lost everything, lost every every part of their family. And and Marin was in a very very abusive relationship, controlling you know relationship um, with, with someone who kept kept her down, kept her prisoner. And so naturally, it makes sense for her to uh, you know to to want to get out and see see what she might want to do you know to find her powers explore who knows did she take other lovers did she uh you know what did she go and explore and do there, there's there's so much there and and you know so much you she she talks a lot about her background but cal we really know very little about his childhood and his parents and where were they and who were they and you know it's 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 a mystery and um mysteries like that never go away i'm I, i'm an adoptive father and um I've, I've met many adopted people my daughter's adopted and it's like you, you can be separated from your birth parents but the, the mystery about it if you don't know who they are is never going to go away you know you're always going to wonder what who were they what did they do why did they why didn't they hang around um you know what happened to them what were they like you have fantasies about what they were like, but you really want to know what they were like. And like Cal, you know, you don't see any cousins or siblings or anything. Yeah. Yeah. Just his masters, his dead master's lightsaber is basically what he has as a, as a past. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, he's, it, it, it makes sense for him to be clinging in a way to this group of people that he kind of fought off and then got close to. And, but then, you know, things break apart. Right. You're sort of the the kind of director who you you work with some of the same people over time on different projects, right? You sort of bring back people that you like to work with. Do you, uh... Deborah Wilson for sure? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think she's been in almost everything I've done. Yeah, I, I definitely remember playing Wolfenstein: The New Colossus, and and she was like stole the show by the end of it. I think she was really great in that. And then you brought back T.J. Ramini as well, so that was cool. 
It's interesting because um, I did another game, Forspoken, and Janina was in that, TJ was in that, Deborah's in that, Victoria, Claudia, you know, like, I, I was sort of like stacking it with video game stars. And it was interesting because I found, oh, and um, what's his name? Anthony, Anthony Scordo, who was the father in Battlefront 2, The Admiral. And I saw, I found this thing online where it was like, is there a sequel to Battlefront 2 going? Because someone had tracked all these actors who are doing motion capture in LA at the same time. And it was like, I'm sure they're getting them all together. You know, they're doing a sequel. It's definitely happening. Uh, it's, it's funny how you have to be so careful, you know, about giving away anything, but yes, I, I, I like to bring great people back. I think of, I have this joke, I call them the Tom K players. That's the name of my company is Tom K Productions. And so I, I, I started this joke of the Tom K players and then um, that act, the actors actually kind of like it, like I'm one of the Tom K players, you know? But I always tell them, if you've been invited back a second time, you're in the Tom K players. Um. <laughs> you know, I don't know if anybody expected Fallen Order to be, you know, as successful as it was, right? It was like this huge single player game at a time. In, in 2019, people thought single player games might go away, <laughs> which, you know, people were really scared of that. And then Fallen Order is like EA's most successful game that year, or one of them that's, you know, at least not a sports game. And, um, you know, and now, so you bring these people back, like Cameron Monaghan and, and uh, Tina, who plays Marin and, and Deborah. Like, did you have a sense that they were thinking about the project differently now or... For sure. I noticed, because uh, I looked, was looking at a couple of scenes the other day, and then I was looking at a couple of scenes from the first game, and I noticed, I mean, I, I obviously was aware of it when we were filming, when we were shooting the second one, but that Cal's voice had changed, that Ka Cameron's voice had shifted a bit, or the voice that he was using, um, it had really deepened and gotten a little bit huskier, and he was using that voice, and... Um, I think of anybody he, he thought about the most, and also I think Tina thought about it quite a bit as well. Um, she, she had a lot to say about how she thought the character, how she wanted the character to be. And one of the reasons I bring back the same people in my work. Now, uh, I will say that um, the Respawn team, they, they kind of decided who, who we're bringing back. Right, it already kind of was a given. They, they presented the project to me and they said, oh, we're bringing back this person, this person, this person. She wanted, uh, Tina really wanted the, you know, the character had to have more agency and also just to be a little less stiff, a little less kind of Spock-like um, this time around. So it's kind of finding, finding that fine line between, you know, Marin is, you know, in the first one, she was like, why would you, you know, why, you, why are you upset or why do you, you know, <laughs> she would just say the facts. And in this one, she would say the facts, she would cut through the facts when she needed to, but she had more nuance. And, you know, she, she had digested her own history and her own past and, and the idea of emotions a little bit more. So those kind of campfire scenes, um, you know, there was some real intimacy, you know, between them in this one. So, um, they, in fact, there was a lot about intimacy and friendships. Um, there's this scene kind of near the end um, where they're having tea Grease brings some tea out and they're sitting around a campfire and there's a sense of hope and and always around a sense of hope there's also you know and they're gonna they're gonna go off to Tantalor and there's always there's always a sense of loss as well sort of like hope and loss together but we had all these nice little scenes where people you're not shouting they're just like 
you know, they're out in this beautiful location. And, you know, sometimes it's like right before the vacation or right before the trip is the sweetest time. You know, the anticipation of something is just so delicious because the reality of whatever difficulties you're going to face, you, you don't have to deal with. So it was a wonderful scene to do because it, it just kind of went, from, it, it was sort of small huddle to small huddle to small huddle, you know, it, with these very intimate conversations. I, I, I love that scene. I just watched it the other day. I was reading about someone that had said it was one of their favorite scenes. And I was like, oh yeah. You know, here's the thing about, I, I do this work and then like, you know, a year or a year or so later it comes out and I'm working on other things and it's like, okay, I oh, I want to go back and do, oh, how did they, how did that scene turn out? Sometimes it's really good and sometimes it's like, oh, really? Because, <laughs> you know, video games are made by so many people. Um, sometimes they don't get the memo down the chain <laughs> of what, what we were working on in the shoot, so... Well, you know, if I'm going to pay compliments to your work, one of the things that game critics talk about is how bad romance or intimacy or kissing scenes or sex scenes, things like that tend to be in video games across the board. It's very, very hard to get right. And I think that when I think back to like things like Wolfenstein or the sort of campfire, you know, quiet conversations in Survivor, like you're very good at that. Um, you know, that the very subtle human you know, intimate acting of just two people having a very whispered conversation or, or what have you. Um, that's something that games definitely struggle with because of, like you say, that pipeline of 10,000 people touching the same project, right? So, yeah. Um, well, one of the things I, I saw the scene, you know, the, the scene with Marin again, and when they kiss, I guess I can say that, um, it's Marin who initiates it. Right. And, you know, right there. So um, I'm, I'm always, I always feel like when I see sex scenes between men and women, particularly, it's like, why is it always the guy that, you know, why is the, why is the woman always the receiver and the guy is always the giver? Like, you know, can't we shake this up a little bit? But also in Wolfenstein, then we had sex scenes. We had two sex scenes in um, the new order. And I think that, that was the first time I ever did a sex scene. I, I think I've done very few, actually. I think those those are probably the only actual sex scenes I've ever done. But, you know, we're doing sex scenes in mocap suits with a lot of Velcro. So there's a lot of rustling. Um, and <laughs> actually, the new Colossus had some sex scenes, too. That's right, between Frau Engel's daughter and the African guy. And it's, it's wonderful when performers want to get into it and they sort of go, um, you know, they feel safe enough. Let's just say that they feel safe enough. But I think it has to be, you know, about emotion more. And um, underneath the emotion, those emotional moments is I'm very big on action. Like, what's the action? I, I don't know if you're aware of what an action means in acting. Um, the action is the thing that the character, the ideal thing they want to accomplish or the way they want to affect the person in the scene. And so if you, you know, let's say your action is to, to get her to trust me, right? You can start out on a course of behavior, but you still have to play off the partner to see. Sometimes I'll ask the other person, I'm like, are you trusting him or are you getting excited? Um, do you feel like he's bringing you, do you feel like she's bringing you on board? And they'll go on like, not really. And I'm like, you, to the actor, I'm like, come up with something else, you know, try something else because you're not, you're not having the effect. Don't get stuck in doing it a certain way. You have to be in the moment and you, you, know, you have to see the effect on that person's face. And I, I want to, say to the other person in the scene, I, I was like, try something unconventional. Are you getting that? Are you feeling, you know, 
uh, are you feeling like you want to go to town? <laughs> you know, uh, does it sound like a good proposition? Uh, there's a whole scene where they're they're trying to convince Grease to sort of explore going to Tantalor, and Grease is like, "Ah, oh, nobody wants me," you know. And you know, they can't just go, "Come on, Grease, you're coming with us." Like that, you know, that wouldn't affect Grease, so they have to kind of back in. Well, we could find somebody else. Well, I guess you know, blah blah blah, right? Like, I I, I like you. You can affect somebody. You can make somebody feel great or like a piece of shit without having to illustrate it. I can say, you know. Um, Alex, your, you know, your questions are so brilliant and you, you know, you're always so well prepared. I don't have to go, your questions are so brilliant, right? I can just say it. I could also say, do you know anything about acting? Clearly you don't, right? <laughs> yeah, I was in one play, so, you know, not much, not much. <laughs> it's like, I don't, I don't have to, <laughs> I don't have to jump up and down and have the effect. I can just watch, you know. Uh, and that's what I, that's how, kind of how I like to work, especially in those intimate moments about, you know, people, people connecting and just seeing how their words or their presence affects the other person. Yeah. You talked, you used the phrase before a few years ago, working the scene. So that's what you're talking about, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Um, just kind of trying different ways of, of getting it to, to do what's trying to be accomplished on the script, right? Like that kind of thing. You're seeing people in a situation and as the as the player the audience whatever you you want to you go like let's say in a rom-com right you go like they meet cute or they don't meet well right whatever and you go they're going to get married right <laughs> they're going to get together i know it and then the whole time you're wondering how are they going to get together they're just getting they're just getting worse with each other you know but you're seeing you so you're seeing the people in the situation but they don't have to illustrate that for you um and if it's good writing, you get that too. So, you know, you're working the scene. I always tell actors when, when they're auditioning for me, I'm like, I just want to see a person in a situation. You look at somebody and go, oh boy, oh, well, they're in trouble now. Or, you know, you're, the, the audience is always one step ahead as well. They're always one step ahead. Somebody mentions something, they go, oh, they're going to, oh, or he's going to betray them or blah, 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 blah. Right. And then one little slip. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of times where I really like to bury the action, you know, the person, you know, there's that one particular character, right. Where there's a, they have a lot buried throughout the whole game. They have a lot buried. And I'm like, you cannot, you cannot allude to any, anything at all. You cannot, you, I have to feel you really care about Cal. I have to feel you're giving him the best advice. And really, sincerely, even if you know that something terrible is going to happen, because that's, you know, that's your long game. Somebody asked me the other day, they were like, do you, do you ever like just give people the pages that they're going to do and then, you know, not tell them what's going to happen? Like some directors like to do that. And I'm like, I would never do that. Because sometimes, if, for example, like that character that has so much hidden, like if they don't know what's going to happen in the end, then how do they know how to set that up? you know, from the beginning or how to hide that. And then they're going to feel really cheated and manipulated. Sometimes they haven't written the thing or sometimes we haven't discovered something about a character. And then we all kind of go, God, I wish we had discovered this earlier because we would have played this scene a little bit differently early on. But when I'm doing my homework, my director's homework, I do a lot of homework. I like to do homework. I feel really insecure 
I think <laughs> I'm a nervous person. I don't don't really come off that way, but I'm really nervous. And even like before our meeting today, I did homework. <laughs> so um, I do a lot of homework, but it's funny because when I'm doing directing homework and when I'm doing scenes and things, it's like I make some choices. And then the further into the act, I get like, oh, no, okay, now I decide this. And I'm like, nope, got to go back to the beginning and change that choice at the beginning. Because now, and finally, when I find the scene, it's like, okay, then I got to go back to the beginning and make it kind of make it line up. Even if you don't see it coming, it's logically going to be earned by this specific point. But every scene has to be about something. Every scene has to be a turning point, has to have a turning point, or has to have something that changes, and has to have people that are... If they're not butting heads, you know, that's what they call conflict, right? If they're not butting heads, they have to be like in a three-legged race. You know what that is, right? Where they, you know, you're, you have a potato sack or you tie, the, you, you tie one leg together and you're trying to, you, 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 you have to walk together, but you have different rhythms. And so, you know, you have to, you have to sculpt the scene around that. Where's the thing that changes and how are the people with different rhythms moving towards that? Pe people who have different desires and, and one of them is going to get what they desire and the other person may not or may get partially or, you know, you, that's where dramatic, where dramatic tension comes in. Yeah. I love that whole Jetta section of the game where uh, Cal and Marin are just sort of on their adventure together. And that's a good example, I think, because she's sort of so much more powerful than him in like a, in sort of a raw sense how she can just sort of teleport from place to place. And he's, you know, he's got to like do the mountain climbing thing a little bit more uh, the old fashioned way. So that's always fun. Yeah. Or ride a spam wall or, you know, uh, <laughs> um, you know, uh, she's going to wait for him. Is she going to go on ahead? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a perfect example of that. You know, that's a, that's a built in conflict right there. It's funny, you, you mentioned, you compared her to Spock a minute ago, and when I played this game, it reminded me so much of The Wrath of Khan because of Dagon Gera. Did that movie come up at all? No, no, it didn't, but that's a good, um, yeah, that's good, yeah, yeah. It's got it's got a few parallels because of like the space station with the laboratory and like uh you know the whole idea of like the world shaping technology and stuff. So I don't know. I I went and watched the movie after I finished the game and it was kind of a fun little. Uh, but yeah, Dagon Gara was a fun character for sure. And it's funny you pointed out that Grease is like missing one of his right arms because Dagon is also missing his right arm. Yeah, a missing arm is um, works well. <laughs> On the video game in, in uh, yeah, in um, Wolfenstein, um, the new Colossus, right? Then, um, Gideon Emery's character loses his arm, and there's the whole thing about right, he has the mechanical arm, and he's trying to he's crushing the cookies, and he tries to give a road. The arm has a mind of its own, and he's at battle, he's in battle with the arm. Uh, is he the scientist with the monkey, or no, no, he's the um. God, I can't believe, uh, I want to say, he's the Scottish guy. He's one of the two players in, you know, you, you can play as, as as him or you can play as the younger guy. That's right, yeah, he's he's the guy you, I think you rescued him from prison in the first game, something like that. Yes, Fergus, Fergus, yeah. yeah it's funny you mentioned Gideon, um, he, uh, he plays BD1, right, in the mocap. So, you know, it's funny because um, we were... We were working on the first game and it just, we had an actor 
was doing, who was kind of handling BD-1. And there's a lot to work out at the beginning, you know, with the whole Jedi thing and kind of training people to walk like a Jedi. And we realized that we had to, Cal had so many scenes with BD-1 that we had, it had to be like dialogue um, because then there's, you know, there's nothing coming back. And I called up Gideon. I, I said, I said to the producers, I was like, I think Gideon Emery could do this really well because he, and he does all these sounds and stuff. When I called up Gideon, I was like, Gideon, I would love to, and he lives in New York also. So I was like, I've got this role. It's not on camera. It's, it's, <laughs> it's handling this thing, this, this kind of puppet droid, you know, I, I, and we need sounds. And we need we need dialogue. And I'm like, you'll you'll be on set, you'll be in every scene, but you won't be in the game. Um, are you open to that? And he was like, sure, oh sure, 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 okay, sure, yeah, let me think about it. Okay, sure, why not? And um, he is he got this nose flute. Do you know what a nose flute is? It's like oh, this weird thing that you 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 have like a band, and you, it's like this flat thing you put it on your nose, and he makes these BD one sounds like. Like he's wearing this thing around his face. It's it's really wild, and he's like always there. You know, he's always he's he's there in every scene. He's like a a big part of the cast. And you know, well, BD would do this, BD would do that. So it's he's really an amazing, I mean, an amazing part of it. And I think they I think they took some of the sounds from sounds that he did, and and places that he did them, and things he added, and you know, dialogue dialogue that he had with Cal. Yeah. He's sort of Cal's Chewbacca or R2D2. You know, he's, he's a fan favorite character as well as like, he, he's got that sort of uh small dog behavior. You know, he's kind of uh, got a full personality. Yeah. We, I asked a lot of questions about like, what is, how are we treating BD one, you know, like a robot, like a being. And then we came up with kind of like a pet. Right, like a very intelligent pet. It seems like a good analogy, and um, um, a, you know, trusty, trusty pet. And there's this one scene where, near the beginning, where there's this animal. I forget what it was. This like giant thing. And BD, I I don't know. I haven't seen I haven't seen that part of the game. But there's a thing where BD kind of explores it and got, goes up the creature's nose or something, and then gets sneezed out. I don't know if that stayed. Did that stay in it? That, it's like a giant, giant dinosaur thing. Is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the thing, you know, that, that Cal says to him, because Cal is like, I can't lose you. You know, I can't handle any more losses. He's like, you can't do that. You can't, you know, he's 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 crusting over because he, he doesn't want any more losses. He can't have any more losses. It's a, it's cause kind of a simple scene, but it has you know real real emotional resonance. As long as you know, you know, as long as you have charted kind of the through line for Cal, right? Which is that you know uh, there's all his losses, and he he wants to he wants to recover from those losses and bring people back together and and prevent any more losses from happening. So you mentioned your book and talked a little bit about it, but have you? decided on kind of like the structure, like, is that going to be semi-autobiographical or is it going to be more of like a, a handbook to directing or how would you describe that? It's the handbook. It's a manual. I think of it as a manual, but of course, through my perspective, right? And every chapter um, has a little story about an experience 
you know, um, a, a game directing experience at the beginning of the chapter. And then I go into the chapter and then there's, there's paragraphs and topics, but then, then there's a lot of sidebars with sort of like recipes for things like, you know, how to run a rehearsal or, you know, how to do a table read or, or, or ideas for things. Um, I want it to be less kind of texty and, and more like a manual. Someone just asked me yesterday, can you put photos in it? And I was like, hmm, I don't know. Um, you know, can you put photos from your work? I was like, I have photos, but I'm, you know, there's so many rights involved with that. But, um, you know, maybe drawings or something. I don't know. I don't know visually how it's going to look. But um, so there's, there's some memoir type stuff. And the first chapter, the, the introduction is a little bit like, how did I, you know, how I kind of got into video games and how I got into theater and everything like that. There's, there's a chapter called, there's something I'm very big on called the three things that, that you need to, at the, at the minimum, you need to know the three things. The three things are place. So it's the environment. What is it? Where are we? What's going on? Time, which is what just happened. Um, what just happened right before this? Where are we in time? Why now? And then the third thing is the action. Right. What do the what do the characters want to accomplish or need to accomplish in the same PTA? Right. Is the analogy, the acronym. And um, I was thinking about I, I had this story about when I auditioned for this for a drama school that I really wanted to get into. And my parents had split up and we didn't have we had a lot less money. And this was a state university in New York. It was State University of New York at Purchase, which a lot of very esteemed actors have come out of. Philip Seymour Hoffman, um, other people came out of that. And it was just beginning. And I was like, oh, I got to get into this. And they sent some a, a thing of monologues. And you had to pick a monologue, one of the monologues, and do it. And I picked this one from this play called The Rainmaker, a 1950s play. They made a movie out of it with, with uh, Burt Lancaster about a guy who claims he can make rain. And they, I picked this monologue. And I had a horrible trip there. My father took me in a Volkswagen that had no heat in the New York State Thruway in a blinding snowstorm. And we got to the thing and, and, and I was in this, it was in this old house with paper thin walls. And I did the monologue and the guy looked at me and he went, did you read the play? <laughs> and I was like, duh, oh my God, fail, fail, I failed. And I was like, no. And he said, okay. He's like, did you come with anybody today? And I said, yeah, my father. And he goes, okay. So do the monologue as a confession to your father, which is, was a brilliant adjustment. I could not do it. But if I had known, I didn't get in. I went to a different school. But if I had known these three things, even if I hadn't read the play, I would have said to him, okay, well, where are we? What just happened before this? And what's this character's action? What do you think this character's action in? And I could have, if I just had known to ask those three questions in the moment, I, I could have, I could have saved, saved it, but I was just like, no, I should have read the thing. I didn't read the thing, blah, blah, blah. But those three things will get you very far. And, and you, you also always have to, I mean, that's the thing, even if I know those things, again, there's so many scenes and things change in a, whenever we're going to do a scene in the volume, I'll be like, now remind me, where are we, especially with gameplay? What did we just go through a moment ago to get to this scene in gameplay, right? 
and we're, you know, where are we? We're on, we're on a starship or we're in a kind of a warehouse somewhere. We're on a planet. Uh, what's around? And then what's our action? Where are we going? What do we have to do? What do we want to accomplish here? And what, what effect do we want to have? Even if I have ideas about those things, I always try to clarify it again from the team. And sometimes they don't always know. I think, no, I think we blah, blah, blah. Right. Or they have to call up the person who knows. Well, gameplay is still working on this thing. So it could be this. It could be that. Can you say anything about what your sort of next project is? I mean, I know you you did Young Blood, and, and that was what, 2020 that that came out or something. So are you are you kind of working with like machine games again at any point? Or are you sort of doing EA stuff? Or are you allowed to say anything? I'm working with machine games. Well, that's what I was hoping you'd say, but I didn't. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know how far you could take that one, but uh, you know, I have my sort of hunch there. So that's very. I cool. can't take it any farther, but I'm working with machine games. Wow, that's very exciting. I'm happy for you. It is very exciting. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. I know uh, we talked a lot before, but that was years ago so it was cool to catch up and and hear about you know how the jedi survivor sausage got made and yeah it was a a phenomenal game you know i i've started i redid the coruscant section over again i've already i've restarted you know it's just that good so and you start to notice things of course on the second playthrough that you know foreshadow things that you didn't see on the first time which is cool to see so awesome well best of luck with everything and all right and to you too Thanks. Have a good one. Thank you. You too. Take care.